Uh, we're going to do now what we do each Sunday. We'll look at a passage from God's Word and talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, Bible app, any way to access the Scriptures, there's a Bible even under the seat in front of you. If you'll turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 22, when you found that, if you're able, uh, stand together with me in the honor of reading of God's Word. Just full disclosure, this is a, a difficult, at first shocking passage, so maybe I'll just give you a preemptive warning, just, just stay with me if you are <laughs> at all unfamiliar with this and never encountered this before. It is, it is quite interesting. So chapter 22, beginning at verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied, and then God said, take your son your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance and he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place Jehovah-Jireh, that is, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants. And they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, we ask now that you would come and illumine the preaching of your word. Uh, we ask that you would come powerfully among us in a way that reveals to us what it is you want us to see from this passage today. A challenging word, a difficult scene, which is shocking to our ears and to our eyes to read. And I just pray that you'd give us 
the insight to see and understand what you're showing us here. I pray that you would accomplish the good purpose for which you've sent out this word, for you tell us whenever you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. So God, would you accomplish that purpose among each one of us today? And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Uh, my guess is that by now, most, if not everyone, like in the Western world anyway, uh, is aware of, at least, or, or if not quite familiar with the stories penned by J.K. Rowling of a young boy named Harry Potter, the boy who lived. Um, some of you actually are like way too familiar, um, kind of freakishly so, and you need to stop that. Um, but either way, you, you know who that is. Um, an orphan, when we're first introduced to him. Uh, Harry lives a miserable existence now in the care of his aunt and uncle, who treat him horribly uh, throughout his time, even forcing him to live in a little tiny room under a staircase uh, for the whole time that he's with them. That is, until his 11th birthday when Harry receives a mysterious invitation to attend Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, promising him a very different life than he's known up until now. But if you've ever read the books or, or seen the films, uh, what you know is that although Harry now has the promise of entry into the school, uh, in order to get there and realize that promise, he must run, not walk, run through a hidden gate at the train station, platform nine and three quarters. Uh, a platform and a gate that to the naked eye looks exactly like a solid brick wall. He must run towards this wall, and that's how he'll get to the secret train that will take him to this place, uh, which, which whether or not an 11-year-old boy understood the, the physics of why he can't do that, I actually looked it up this week because I was interested. I was just Googled, why can't we walk through walls? Apparently, there's a real scientific explanation. Poly exclusion principle, no two, anyway, it doesn't matter. You can't do it. And, and Harry, whether he understood the physics or not, knew he couldn't do it. I, I, that's an impossible thing for me to go through the wall. Now, he had a choice, right? He could have just decided not to go, uh, go back home to his, you know, relatively miserable existence, just tough it out for seven years until graduation. But in doing so, he would have actually been sacrificing far more than the, the risk of potential concussion and a few broken bones. And without meaning to minimize or, or oversimplify his struggle in the slightest, I think this is very much the kind of impossible dilemma that's facing Abraham in our passage today as well. For if you weren't with us last week, just for context, what we looked at in the origin leading up to chapter 22 was an incredible, extravagant promise from God to Abraham, then Abram, back in chapter 12, to give him a land of his own, make him into a nation as numerous as the stars in the sky. And then a, a, a promise which God confirmed by cutting this covenant with him. That's last week, chapter 15, in order to leave him with no doubt whatsoever of either God's ability to be faithful to the promise or his own. And the reality is that by the time we get to chapter 22 here, God's been faithful to both of those promises. He's brought Abraham into the land that he's promised and provided this childless, elderly couple at last with a flesh and blood heir, Isaac. But as you clearly see from verse 2, the call of God on Abraham to now offer up 
his only son, who he loves as a burnt offering, seems equally as impossible as running through a brick wall. Can't, can't do it. I mean, I guess where one is physically impossible, the other is, is emotionally impossible or relationally impossible. How, how could he ever follow through on such a command? And then even more than that, right? If the child of the promise is lost, Isaac is going to be the one through whom this nation comes. If the child's lost, how will God's promise to make him into a nation as numerous as the stars in the sky be fulfilled? And I think the reality is, is that just like for Harry, Abraham, he had a choice too. He could have said no, right? Like a, like a game show with multiple doors, Abraham could have just said, no thanks. I'm, I'm just going to stick with what I've already won here. I've got Sarah, now I've got Isaac. We're going to camp out in this new land you brought us to for as many years as I have left. He, he could have done that. But in doing so, he would have actually sacrificed far more than he could have known in saying no to that. And, and, and as we know, like we just finished reading, he doesn't say no, right? He does obey God and, and follow through on this command. But when you read closely, what you see throughout this passage is that what, in, in, in response to what is now the extravagance, not of God's promising, but of his asking, is that what enabled Abraham to follow through on this horrific request was not blind obedience, but faith in God's provision. It wasn't blind obedience, just, oh, well, I guess I got to do it. It was faith in God's provision. You see that throughout our passage, that although he doesn't see the evidence of it yet, Abraham believes God himself will provide a lamb for the sacrifice and that he and his son are going to come back down that hill together. So we're continuing in this teaching series we began a few weeks ago entitled Origin Story. Again, the whole purpose of it is that we are growing in our understanding of and appreciation of the New Testament story of Jesus by spending some time studying the origin of that story from the Old Testament. So far, we've looked at the origin of everything, the origin of us, the origin of rests, the origin of sin. Last Sunday, the origin of covenant. But what I want to look at together with you today is the origin of substitution, that is, God's response to Abraham's belief with the provision of a substitute to die in the place of his son. And what's really awesome is that just like last week, well, I pray that our passage is going to help you see and understand two things, the cost of faithfulness and then reasoned faith in the God who provides. We'll look at those two things. But along with that, just like last week, we are going to see how this passage, this origin story, prepares our hearts and minds to better understand the death of God's only son, Jesus, at Easter in a far deeper and more rich way than we could have understood it without this origin story. This just kind of like takes that already amazing story and just like blows it wide open. Okay, so, I mean, are you ready? Yeah, let's do this. If, if you've closed your Bible, a Bible app, whatever you've got, could you open it again? To this passage, Genesis 22, beginning at verse 1, follow along with me as we look now at the origin of substitution. Okay, so let's look first of all at the cost of faithfulness. The cost of faithfulness. And we need to look at this, especially in light of what we looked at last week, because we already know what it cost God to be faithful to this extravagant covenant promise that he'd made to Abraham, namely the death of his son, Jesus. 
But I think for many of us, there can be something of like a disconnect in our minds and in our brains whenever we hear things like unconditional promising from God. When we hear about things like God taking on the penalties of the covenant, should either one of us fail that we looked at last week, you can hear that and we can be like, oh, really? Oh, awesome. Okay, so I guess I'll be at the pool and, you know, I'll get my cell if you do need to contact me, but we're, we're good now, right? Because you, you got everything. We can have that idea in our minds, forgetting what I also said last week, that, that while our obedience to God is never the cause or the basis of our relationship with Him, it is absolutely intended to be the result of our relationship with Him. As James writes in his New Testament letter to the church, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Uh, with the implied answer clearly being no. Uh, uh, that genuine faith will necessarily evidence itself in our actions, right? Like I can't just say and believe this chair is going to sustain my weight when I sit on it. I can believe all those things, but I show that I believe it by sitting down. Same thing here. And so I want to just spend a few minutes together looking at what the cost of faithfulness looks like for us now in this arrangement. But don't worry, I, I, I also know before I can even begin to say a word about that, most of us, maybe a lot of you anyway, need to have at least some kind of explanation first of like what's going on here. How it is that God could even ask Abraham to carry out such a test in the first place. What, what is this passage even? Which hear me, I completely understand. I absolutely understand because when you look at this test, verse 1 of our passage speaks of God giving Abraham. It doesn't just sound difficult or hard, or impossible even. It sounds horrific. Sounds evil. Sacrifice your son? What? As one modern novelist put it, if the story of Abraham and Isaac is true, Abraham was insane, not religious. And yet, as with everything we encounter in the Bible, and in this case in particular, it's really incredibly important that we don't launch into our investigation of what's going on here, beginning with our late modern 21st century mindset, like kind of looking at it from our viewpoint and saying, what do I think about this? We can't start there. And what I don't mean by that is, you know, we should just cut God some slack, right? We should cut him some slack. Or, or you know, like, when you're trying to explain to your kids why grandpa just said something super racist at Thanksgiving dinner, you're like, well, you know, it, it was different times for grandpa. Like, I'm not saying that at all. That's not what I mean. What I mean is we need to seek to hear this command to Abraham as he would have heard it first. We need to understand how does Abraham hear this command when it's brought to him if we truly want to understand what it means for us today. Without getting bogged down in a pile of details, the short answer is that the way Abraham would have heard God's command to him the first time here is both sociologically and theologically. I'm going to cover these very briefly. Sociologically, in that all societies, all cultures in Abraham's day, and even some still today, were much more corporate in their thinking than we are today in our Western individualistic kind of societies. They viewed the firstborn son as being the primary means by which their family line would be carried on. A very important role of the firstborn son. 
Which, no, it doesn't answer the question of why Abraham heard the command to offer Isaac and sacrifice him and, and still obeyed it. But what it does explain is why Abraham would not have obeyed this command if God had said, um, told Abraham to offer Sarah or another one of his children. It would have been like, well, that doesn't sound right. But to him, this priority of this son, he gets why God is asking for this child. So he would have heard it sociologically, theologically in that he would have heard it this way, in that throughout the Old Testament, explicitly stated in places like Exodus, Numbers, God spoke of the firstborn, uh, firstborn animals, first fruits of the crops, the firstborn son as belonging to him, that they are to be offered to him in some way. And Abraham would have absolutely understood this as well. So he's hearing it theologically too. And then beyond that even, it's important to see also, Abraham is not called to murder his son in cold blood. He doesn't just say, walk into the tent and and stab your child. He calls him to offer him as a sacrifice. Those are very different things. For although, yes, they both involve death, one involves, the. you have to think about it as it relates to the willing submission of the one whose life is being offered. For example, like, just think of it this way. Whatever you think about something like medical assistance and dying, I think we would all make a differentiation between someone who chooses that path and a doctor giving a lethal injection to someone who had not asked for it. They both involve death, but they're very different ways of it coming about. Same thing here. So, I know, I know that doesn't answer everything as it relates to this test that God gave Abraham, but I hope it does at least give us a clearer sense of how Abraham would have heard God's call and why in any way his obedience would be listed in Hebrews 11 as an example of faith and not insanity. He's, he's hearing it differently than we are, or we would hear it today. And yet even understanding that much, we shouldn't imagine for a second that the cost of Abraham's faith here was easy for him to pay in any sense of the word. And I know it kind of seems like it was easy for him because if you look at verse 3, it doesn't seem to be any fight whatsoever. He's not arguing with God. He's not pushing back. He just wakes up early and goes. So it seems like it was easy for him. Like that Abraham is just this like either this superhero of the faith with his cape flapping in the wind or, or someone who just follows God like a robot who just heartlessly... Oh, God said it, you know, punching the code, and then Abraham just dances. Like, it it seems like either one of those things. And yet, when you look at the language of verse 2, look with me. Look at the language alone. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. That immediately takes us out of just like this surface level, reading some historical narrative, and it takes us down into the heart of what's going on here, revealing that for Abraham, there is no greater cost that he could be asked to pay. What you need to see is that by describing Isaac with that language, what God is revealing to Abraham and to us is that he knows that's what he's asking. He knows he's asking him for the greatest cost he could be asked to pay. Which, of course, leads us right back to the question we were just wrestling with a moment ago. If God is good in literally any sense of the word, how could he ask for that? What most commentators that I read agree is that the reason God asked Abraham to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice to him is likely because so precious. 
so treasured was this unexpected gift of a child for Abraham and Sarah in their old age. So completed did they now feel as a couple turned family, whatever it is, that they'd begun to shift the focus of their faith and their trust from the promiser to the promise, from, from the giver of the good gift to the gift itself. And therefore, out of deep love and care for them, God tested Abraham in this way. He called him to sacrifice what had become his most treasured possession in order to remind him of the one place that his hope could truly be found. And for the record, testing, as it's used here anyway, has nothing to do with setting Abraham up for failure, uh, toying with him like so many of the capricious deities of the ancient Greece and Rome, but testing as in like the way a steel mill will test the tensile strength of a piece of metal that's intended to be used for an important task in order to understand the load-bearing capacity of it. For if God had called Abraham to something as great as to be the father of a nation through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed, doesn't it make sense that God would also test him greatly? And yet, as Walter Brueggemann put it so powerfully and simply, however, most complacent religion will want a God who provides, not a God who tests. I think that's true. We want a God who provides, not a God who tests. But what I want us to dig into and really grapple with this morning is that the God of the Bible is a God who does both. A God who, yes, provides extravagantly in ways that are both not expected as well as many times not even deserved. And yet he's also a God who tests in order to always ensure that our hope remains in him and not what he's provided. We don't ever make that shift ourselves. Why? Because God's this like cosmic insecure child that needs us to not love anything else but him? No. No, because first of all, what God clearly stated when he laid down in stone what it is that those who follow him must do, that is, at the very top of the list, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the very first command God gives to his people. You shall have no other gods before me. So that's why he never wants us to take the good things he gives us and set them up above him. The reason for that is, secondly, because God knows no matter how good and wonderful a thing he's provided for us may be, it can't offer this satisfaction that only the provider can give. It feels so good because he does give good gifts to us, but it's never meant to replace that place of looking to him as the one who is our first and most treasured of all things. You see all kinds of examples of this throughout the Bible, and the same kind of costly asking, uh, especially you see it in the New Testament. All kinds of ways that Jesus interacts with different people. Nicodemus, woman at the well, the rich young ruler, on and on and on. In every case, Jesus reveals the thing that that person truly worships and then invites them to trade that thing for the treasures that only he can give and that can truly satisfy their hearts. Sometimes they're willing to make that exchange. Other times they walk away sad. And then there's a few really rare occasions that are really awesome where people like Zacchaeus, the sinful woman who anoints Jesus' feet with the costly oil, where they're changed by Jesus and they just willingly offer him their most treasured things without even needing to be invited. That's a bit more rare, but you see it. But here's the thing. If this is truly the case, that God is a God who provides and tests, what that means is that you and me, all of us, we need to honestly ask ourselves, we need to really assess, okay, so who are what or what are the Isaacs in my life? 
What is that thing? Who is that person that I treasure so deeply that I'll sacrifice anything to protect, even at the cost of worship and devotion that I know belongs to God alone? What is that thing in your life? Remember Keller uh, once commenting how often people would come to him and ask, okay, look, if I become a Christian, do I have to do this or do that? Do you have to give up this or give up that? To which he rightly concluded, when you say I'll come to the biblical God as long as he doesn't ask me to stop this or start that, you're not coming to God. What you're saying is, this is my God. And I'll be happy to pray to and deal with this biblical person you want me to meet as long as he helps me get to my real God. It's different. So what is it then? <laughs> Think about it for yourself right now. Make this personal to you. What, what or who is, is your Isaac this morning? The thing you would say, that's the thing that I know I, I treasure and, I'm, and I often am in danger of valuing and treasuring above God even. The provider of that gift. As I think about my own life, um, I can remember what a hard lesson this has been for me to learn. For example, over the years, a lot of you, uh, if I've shared the story over the years of difficult years for my wife and I, early in our marriage especially, one of the things I really struggled with uh, a lot in our early relationship was to be honest with my wife. Just really tell her the truth, especially when I knew I'd be telling her something I knew she didn't want to hear constantly struggling to be honest. And the reason I did that wasn't because I hated her or I didn't respect her. The reason I did that is because I actually treasured her love so much that like Abraham, I'd begun to shift the focus of my heart's deepest satisfaction from the provider of a wife to what he'd provided. And I would give anything, even my honesty and my integrity in order to just hold on to that no matter what, which in that case meant just not being honest. And because God knew that his provision of a wife and marriage could never sustain the weight of my expectation, that only he could do that, like Abraham, I also almost had to lose the provision in order to fix my eyes back on the provider. And it was so dumb <laughs> is that, and I don't know if this is the same for you, is you taught a lesson in one place only to like fail at it in the very next place. And it's one of the reasons, honestly, why I'm both humbled and haunted by this story from Abraham's life because if I swap myself in for Abraham and I swap one of my daughters in for Isaac, I don't know, actually. I don't honestly know if I'd be willing to pay the same cost as Abraham for his faith, and that doesn't make me a better father than him, actually. What that means is I've just substituted now something else and put it in the place that can only be filled by God. Become the, the next thing that he can't take from me. You're not allowed to touch this. This one is off limits, God. Which, please hear me, isn't for a moment to suggest that what God wants from us in life is this tempered, very measured sort of love of the things that he gives us. Right? That we, that we always need to be living in fear that I better not love my wife or my family or my job or anything, my family. I better not love anything too much or God's going to take it away. That, that's not the heart at all of our Father call to do this is two reasons. First of all, it's so that we look to the provider of those good things for our hope and ultimate satisfaction and not the things that he gives us, because those things he gives us weren't meant to sustain that way. And it's, it's so that he can 
give us those things in a way that we can truly enjoy them. Because now we're not looking to those things to provide what only he can. He, offer, he, he invites us to sacrifice those things in order so that we can truly have them and enjoy them. Okay. That's the cost of faithfulness. Last thing I want to look at together with you is reasoned faith in the God who provides. Reasoned faith in the God who provides. And I alluded to this already, but this is ultimately trying to understand from our passage what it reveals about how Abraham was actually able to follow through on such a seemingly impossible test. Like, how did he do it? Again, as I see it, what enabled him to follow through in response to God's extravagant asking was not just blind obedience, not just like, I'm just going to do this because God said it was faith in God's provision. That's what enabled him to follow through. Where you see this explicitly is in three places. Look with me, first of all, at verse 4 and 5. Abraham, Isaac, and his crew, they reach Moriah. Abraham sees the place in the distance where he's to offer Isaac, and he says this to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then come back to you. Which, I mean, my cynical side wants to just believe. He just doesn't want to alarm anybody. So he's just not giving them the whole story. He sort of gives them this, like, uh, yeah, we'll, be here. we'll be right back. He says that because he's just trying to, like, not have people freak out. Maybe. But what's, what, what, what you kind of see as you look at this, my sense is that what's actually being revealed here is Abraham simply has the expectation of provision. He has the expectation of that, and he genuinely believes he'll return with Isaac. He's saying that because he genuinely believes God's going to provide in some way. Second we thing we see uh, evidence of this is the conversation that Abraham has with Isaac. We have recorded in verses 7 and 8. Look there. They're climbing the hill. Isaac is carrying the wood for the burnt offering. Abraham has the knife and the fire. And at some point, Isaac asks the awkward question, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? To which Abraham replies there in verse 8, God himself will provide for the lamb, my son. Which again, could be, it could be smoke and mirrors. He's trying to throw him off just so that he'll, he'll follow him and go on this test. But given all that we've seen of Abraham already, it seems more likely this is once again a genuine expression of faith in God's provision. In fact, what a number of commentators pointed out is that the word provide that Abraham uses here in the Hebrew literally means to see or to see to it. Which means what Abraham is ultimately saying to Isaac is this, I, I can't see the lamb that God's going to provide, but I'm trusting that he sees it already and that he will see to it himself. And yet, wow, right? Like, Can you even imagine the, the tortured, anguished hope that Abraham has in his heart and mind right now as he says this to his son? Because sure, we, we know Hey, God does provide for the substitute for Isaac. They will absolutely walk back down the hill together after worshiping God. But Abraham doesn't know that. Abraham hasn't, hasn't read Genesis 22. He doesn't know how this is going to work out. For him, this is simply about continuing to move forward in hope and faith that God's going to come through, that he will see to it. The last place we see this actually is not in our passage, but in a New Testament passage referring to this one, Hebrews chapter 11, which says this, 
By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, did receive Isaac back from death, which reveals, look, even beyond his hope for a provision of a substitution, Abraham had faith that even if he did have to go through with this awful test, God could raise his son back from the dead so that they would still come back down the hill together. God's going to see to this somehow. I don't know how, but he's going to see to it. And actually, I think that language from Hebrews 11 of reasoned faith, that actually applies to all three of these examples of Abraham's faith that we have provided here. That is, this was not Abraham summoning up enough strength to just blindly follow through on this extravagant ask from God, even though everything in him must have just been screaming, like, don't do this, this is wrong, I can't do this to my son. It wasn't just blind obedience. No, this was a thoughtful, reasoned faith based on what he knew to be true both about the God who was calling him to this impossible test, as well as God's unlimited ability to accomplish the impossible. You think about the fact that Abraham even had a son to offer in the first place was evidence of that. God could do the impossible. Abraham's 100 years old when he has this child. As we see in verse 13 of our passage, look here. The reward of Abraham's reasoned faith and God's ability to provide is that that's exactly what he does. He provides this substitute, this ram caught in the bushes to be offered in place of his son. And they do, in fact, come down the hill together. We're going to focus the last few minutes of our time on the actual provision of a substitute itself. But as you think about what this means for you and me, I promise you, when it comes to the seemingly impossible things that God calls us to, the the scary unknowns that he calls us to step out and follow him into each and every day, the exact same thing is true for you too. God doesn't call you to a blind faith. It just has to unquestionably carrying out orders, no matter how absurd, no matter how wrong they might feel. God said it, I just have to do it. That's not what he calls us to. You don't have to shut off your mind to follow Jesus. He calls us to have a reasoned faith in him that considers his character as well as his infinite power and wisdom when we're called to trust him with something beyond our ability to understand or accomplishment. To to think about who he's revealed himself to be. All the impossible, crazy, unbelievable things he's already accomplished in our life. And then only then, after a reasoned consideration of all that, Put your faith in him to provide whatever it is that he knows is best and follow him into what he's called you to. It's only after a reasoned consideration of those things that we can follow him in. It's not blind obedience. But then that's it, right? End of story. Right? Well, we, we come to this climactic moment. Abraham is about to sacrifice his son. God intervenes, stops him there, last possible moment, verse 12. Angel stops him, don't touch the boy, don't harm him. Then with with this very telling revelation, verse 12, a second part, he says, Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And then, yeah, right, Abraham looks up, ram caught in the bushes. 
takes that, offers it in place of his son. God renews his promises to Abraham, give him the land, make him his nation as numerous as the stars in the sky, and that's it, right? Uh, 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 roll the credits, start up the, the theme song, reprised by Billie Eilish or whoever, and fade to black. That's it. Good show. And yet what I know is that for some of you, maybe a lot of you here right now, despite everything we've just unpacked and looked at from the passage, great, great, all that, you're actually still stuck all the way back at the test of verse 2. And feeling like, no, sorry. The cost of faith here is, is too much. It's too much. There's, there's no way God should be able to even ask for such things as this. This is wrong. This is messed up. This is evil that God would even ask this. I can't, I can't even, you're trying to bring us down here. I'm sorry, I still can't even get beyond that. It's not okay for him to ask. But when you consider something like that, what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8.32, where he says this, He, that is God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You begin to realize the massive difficulty in making such a claim. That we would say it, it's, it is okay that... that God would give what is most precious and treasured to him for my salvation, but it's not okay for him to ask me for what's most treasured in my life. And you also begin to realize what the origin story from our passage today is actually setting us up to see and understand. It's pointing to something far greater than this story here in Abraham's life. Because what Abraham was only willing to do Centuries later, God actually did in sending Jesus as our substitute. Sending Jesus as our sacrificial ram offered in your place and in mine. And as if to remove any doubt that that was the case, what you learn as you continue to trace the threads from this origin story is that the mountain that Abraham and Isaac climbed all those years before, Mount Moriah, was the very mountain centuries later upon which Solomon builds the temple. Beside which stood another small hill called Golgotha, Calvary. Where 2,000 years ago, God's only son, who he loved, carried the wood of his sacrifice to the top of the hill. And he laid down on that wood and was bound to it, both with rope as well as with nails, but this time there was no substitute offered. Why? Well, because he was the substitute. Meaning how rightly, as we see in verse 14, was Mount Moriah called Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. He did. God himself will provide the lamb, my son. I love uh, Keller's comment on all this when he imagines Abraham years later standing at the foot of the cross and looking up at Jesus and speaking God's very words back to him, saying, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son who you love from me. 
how can you do this? How can, how can we pay the seemingly impossible costs of faith in our own life? Offer up those Isaacs that we all treasure and trust in so deeply that we feel it's unfair for God to even ask. I think what we learned from our passage today is that there's at least two ways that we can begin to try. First of all, by reasoning with yourself. Just as Abraham did, allowing your heart and mind to be changed by considering what you know to be true about the character of God calling you, as well as his demonstrated ability to be faithful to the extravagant promises that he's making. He always makes good on his promises. He's able to provide. And secondly, by allowing your heart to be moved and strengthened as you picture Jesus, our substitute. Walking up that hill for you, taking the nails and the spear for you, paying the full cost for our sin and his death so that by faith now, you too can always say whatever we're called to. We can always know and believe. I know now for all time you truly do love me. This can't be punishment. This can't be anything else, anything other than love because you did not withhold your only son who you love from me. Amen.